Hi, and welcome to the first episode of The Annotated Author, where we discuss literature and film through a critical and artistic lens. I'm your host, David Muscala. I want to start by introducing the podcast for those of you joining me on this journey. I have a pretty big collection of favorite books, movies, and artists of all types that have influenced my creative process. I wanted to create a space that recognizes those pieces, but also criticizes them socially and artistically. Along the way, there will be lessons about writing, about directing, and overall, on how we can use the pieces readily available to us to start our journeys into our own creativity. There will also be interviews with folks that I admire and respect greatly, where we will discuss their craft and how they have gotten to where they are. The challenges, the successes, and the spirit-breaking failures, all a part of our journey and what I feel are important to discuss. I have so often heard many people say they are doing something for the person that comes after them and to be a role model for their community, and well, I hope this podcast would be me acting on that. I want to create a collection of lessons I've learned so that people know what I know and can take all of that as they wish in hopes that it will help someone somewhere down the line. I want to start the series with a piece of literature that in my memory was the first major book that I ever picked up. Outside of learn how to read books and Dick and Jane style writings, this novel definitely propelled me into the world of reading and storytelling. When I was in the third grade, my family would take these trips out of town to go shopping at a collection of outlet stores. I always hated the long drive and the constant store to store without any real purchasing happening. We window shopped a lot, but we always capped the day with a stop at a toy store that also had a wide collection of books. I I was not much of a reader at the time, but my mom would read to me a lot throughout toddler years and through elementary school. I also had a lot of aunts and uncles that thankfully I could pressure into reading the same little golden books over and over to me. There was one trip in particular to these outlets that I remember really well. We had done all our shopping and were finishing up in the toy store. At the entrance was a table set up with multiple stacks of hardcover books, all of them part of the series of great illustrated classics. I was drawn to one of the covers that had a man standing on a rock whipping back a roaring lion. By this time in my childhood, I was a huge Indiana Jones fan and this cover reminded me very much of that. I flipped through the book a bit and saw the illustrations of different adventure scenes and made my parents buy me the book. The book I had picked up was King Solomon's Mines. I was in the third grade, so that would make me, what, about eight years old, I think. If I remember right, too, it was summer, so the year was 2003 and my young self had the greatest time reading through this illustrated chapter book. I didn't know it at the time, but this novel was fundamental to a lot of people. It's one of those books that if you ask enough, you'll find there's a decent amount of folks that have read it. If they haven't read it, maybe they watched one of the terrible campy Hollywood films that were made. There's a lot about King Solomon's Mines that I enjoyed as a child. The fun adventure, the far-off lands, the action sequences, and even the magic scattered in the ending. When we think of these classic novels that so many people have read and have some type of impact on lives, it's important to also criticize them through a modern lens. My parents had never read the book, 
My dad had heard about it, but never picked it up. So I was left to educate them on what the book was about. And like I said, at eight years old, it was just a fun adventure story that made me want to don a fedora and go treasure hunting. Looking back as a 26-year-old man educated in racism, misogyny, and imperialism, it has a very different meaning to me, but I would say one that is just as important. I'm going to start with a quick summary of the novel, so if you have not read the book or plan on reading it, I'm sorry. This is your spoiler warning. The book begins with Alan Quatermain, who is living in Africa during the peak of European colonization and imperialism. He meets Sir Henry and Captain Good. Both are hoping to get his assistance in finding Sir Henry's brother, George, who was last seen by Quatermain. Quartermain explains that George was obsessed with finding the fabled King Solomon's Mines, to which luck would have it, Quartermain had just come into possession of a map leading directly to them. Quartermain brings along with him an African guide and servant by the name of Umbopa. On their journey, they have a near-death experience running out of resources, but are saved by a turn of fate, and find water and some fruit to keep them moving. They arrive at the mountains, where the mines are said to be, but are nearly frozen to death as they begin their climb. They decide to return to the base of the mountain, where they run into a village of folks known as the Kukuwana. Some tricks are played by the party that convince the villagers that they might be gods. Everyone is in awe except for the town's elder and priestess Gagul. She says she has seen men like this before, and they are liars and will only be trouble. King Tuala does not believe her and welcomes them to stay. Umbopa reveals to his party that he is actually the rightful heir to Kukuwana land and is actually named Ignasi. The team concocts a plan to overthrow the current ruler, King Tuala, and put Ignasi in his place. There is a war between tribes that believe Ignasi to be rightful heir and those that side with King Tuala. A few more tricks are played by the white men and the use of an almanac to predict the blocking of the sun, and they win the war. In turn, Ignasi is placed king and the group is able to find both King Solomon's Mines and George. So why does this book matter? Why is it considered a classic, and what would deem it to be placed in the Great Illustrated Classics catalog designed for children? Well, to get that, we have to start by understanding the history of the novel, and the great debate. Do you prefer Treasure Island, or do you prefer King Solomon's Mind? When H. Ryder Haggard had read Treasure Island, he told his brother that he would be able to write something just as good, if not better. The two placed a bet, and from that, this novel was born. Along with it, a new genre that was simpler to read compared to the epics of the classical era, boys' adventure books. There are a multitude of novels that fall in this category and this genre. Uh, eventually, it would aid many authors in their creation of the anti-adventure book, with the most famous of these being Lord of the Flies taking many of the elements of the adventure book and giving them a strong reality filter. Today, it can be argued that H. Ryder Haggard wrote a first-hand account of colonial Africa that has endured better because it was disguised as a propaganda in favor of colonization. The characters carry many of the thoughts and ideologies of people of the time, and because of that, we have a straight-from-the-horse's-mouth account of colonialism. One that, through history, has been whitewashed to hide some of the more grotesque events and sentiments. Something that has fallen on the African population to constantly correct. I'll get more into that in a moment. 
There are a few items that are best to be discussed in terms of the writing of the novel. The book, like I mentioned, being an adventure book, has all the elements of your quest novel. A group of people coming together to accomplish a goal, and the lessons that are learned when you throw very different individuals together. Unfortunately, to find that little bit of silver, you have to sift through a heavy amount of racism. By the end of the novel, Quartermain and the other Europeans become friends of Umbopa and pledge their allegiance to him, giving their word that no other white person will dare step in Kukuwana land. Great, but does that make up for the way Umbopa is treated for the majority of the novel? I say no. Nevertheless, we can't ignore that character arc. It's written for a reason, and many have argued because H. Ryder Haggard did not have the same sentiment towards the African people as many of his time had and that all the racism and values are those of the character he created and not of his own convictions. Some would point to this passage just before the battle. Yet man dies, not wilts the world, at once his mother and his monument remains. His name is lost, indeed, but the breath he breathes still stirs the pine tops of the mountains. The sound of the words he speak yet echo through space. The thoughts his brain gave birth to, we have inherited today. His passions are our cause of life. The joys and sorrows that they knew are our familiar friends. The end from which he fled aghast will surely overtake us also. This stream of consciousness from Quartermain gives a strange idea about the Kukuana soldiers about to die in battle. He sees them not as savages that would die for anything, like so many of his time thought, but he gives them humanity, something you don't really see in other books of the period. A semblance of empathy for those deemed to be the bottom ring of the hierarchy. Stream of Consciousness is a beautiful way to write some of the most gripping passages of any book or movie, hell, even an essay if you get the opportunity giving thought its full moment, walking people through emotions and giving them color, a tangibility, is truly powerful. I would say that's why the close-up in cinema is so important. If you get a good actor that can go through their full range as you get a tight frame, that's when the audience is fully immersed. They can start to see themselves perfectly, even if the action around the character is foreign to them. Haggard does a great job of using stream of consciousness throughout, but nothing is as beautiful as a scene just before the battle. Authors later will take this tool that was not given much time and create full works and signatures around it. Virginia Woolf will go on to become a pioneer of the writing style. King Solomon's Minds is not all greatness of the writer and of the characters' journeys to better understanding of one another. When the idea is that another character is no different than a pack mule carrying luggage. The bar is very low to grow some semblance of understanding. Giving Ignasi humanity at the end is a breadcrumb to applaud. The piece of consciousness that is so often quoted as a moment that changes the theme of the book is often never completed. Sir Henry goes on to break Quartermain's focus on the scene before him, saying, Look, here, Quartermain, this business is a nasty one. One with which, properly speaking, we ought not to be mixed up. 
but we are in for it. So we will make the best of it. This idea of getting mixed up is literally him saying, we can give these men the emotional toll of death and grieve, but once it's over, they go right back to being savage Africans. Untamed people of an untamed land. What difference does it make for Quartermain to empathize with these men if that moment will be gone as quickly as it has come? That's the problem with trying to defend racist pieces. It's often grasping at straws and trying to convince someone that it's spun gold. The racism is intrinsic. There is a hierarchy of people in the novel. And even among the white men, a hierarchy exists. Quartermain takes the extreme with Ignasi and has him be the help the entire way. It is the white man taking charge as in all racist stories. Then there is the opening in which Quartermain writes as the narrator, I can safely say there is not one petticoat in the whole history. By that, he is specifically talking about women. Nevertheless, it is further reinforced when we are introduced to Sir Henry, who is a naval officer, wearing a petticoat. To which Quarterman makes the assumption by how he is dressed that he will weigh down the group because of the femininity and pomp attached to the clothing. It would be the modern equivalent of someone seeing a man in a skirt and saying, well, I'll win no matter what because I have on my masculine pants. The two are completely unrelated, but for some reason, we needed a hierarchy. Even further, Haggard refers to Gagol, the town priestess, as it, removing her of her identity as a human, let alone as she. Haggard writes this novel as a white man for white men. He constantly refers to the naivety of the Kukuwana people because they are subhuman, they are barbaric and savage. He juxtaposes this with the idea any basic science would have impressed them and made the people believe that dark magic was in their possession or make them even believe that this group of very simple men were gods. For example, the use of an almanac to know that an eclipse was coming and using that as a show of force for the people and even convincing them of divinity in the white man. The people of Kukuanaland were so naive and so uncultured by standard of white society, that even that would fool them. Even though these people, if we would be studying them today, most likely had their own way of knowing when an eclipse was coming, or understood the movements of the planets in a far better scale. The novel takes place in Zimbabwe. The reason King Solomon's mines are believed to be here is because of how rich this area was. Salt deposits in the Sahara gave way to the largest commercial centers known in the world at the time just after the plague had wiped out a fifth of Europe. It would be gold from these lands that would fund banking in Europe, modern capitalism in Venice, and it would fund what is considered man's most prestigious art, architecture, and invention during the Renaissance. It appears that white people so often overlook how Africa carried what would be the world's development for years. Without it, so much of what Europe is known for would never exist. Thousands of scrolls with the world's knowledge are kept here in Zimbabwe. And people from around the world traveled here to become far more educated than they could in their homelands. 
if I remember correctly, something of like 80% of the Af African population at the time of the Great Salt Trade were students. These cultures were not as barbaric or savage as white historical documents would have you believe, or even as Haggard himself would want you to believe. Is this book a classic? Sure. Only because it has a very cut and dry ABC of what an adventure story is. Can you receive the same information from another novel of the same style? Absolutely. Do you avoid the racism and misogyny? It really depends on what you pick up. I happened to pick up this one as a boy at 8 years old, and now as a 26-year-old looking back on the book, I can see how wrong all of it was. I have to give it credit, though, for inspiring me to write my first stories. Adventure stories about treasure hunting fighting the big bad guy, impressing people with my intellect and brawn. At the helm of these stories was me. I wrote myself as the main character, a brown boy who, if you opened up a book of the same style, you would be hard-pressed to find as a main character. I would have been the help, the comedic relief or just some background supporting role. I wrote stories about the world I knew, my Mexican culture, my Catholic upbringing. The Holy Grail was a favorite piece of treasure for me to hunt after in my stories. Looking back, I understand now that I was creating my identity. I was soul-searching in the most fun way I knew. Imagining a movie in my head and putting it in words, I could put myself anywhere. Mountaintops, in the snow, the desert, far-off lands I had never seen but on postcards or a Discovery Channel show. Hmm. Thinking back on that little kid writing non-stop humbles me. Because I don't give him as much credit as I should for making me the writer I am today. That eight-year-old kid filled with wonder reading anything he could get his hands on. That kid built the foundation for so many of the worlds I have in my mind. This book sparked in me something I hadn't really experienced before as a kid. My imagination was wild, but this allowed me to understand how to focus it better. I tailored my imagination to be more narrative. Do I recommend King Solomon's Minds? Sure. So long as you read it once for the adventure, and then again for criticism. I recommend that for everything, though. It doesn't sound fun for everyone because most people just want to read a book and get lost in the pages. If you're serious about writing and about storytelling, it's just something you have to do. It's worth it in the end. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you want to reach out, please do. My Instagram messages and Twitter messages are always open. This is The Annotated Author, and a reminder that it is always a good time to revisit your favorites. <laughs>